Hello everyone and welcome back to the History Hour here on KZMU. And we had an amazing year this year for the History Hour. Um, I got to interview people that I never would have dreamed uh, of meeting with local history here. Um, and it is the last episode of the year, so I feel like what better way to end the season here for the History Hour than highlighting some of my personal favorite moments from this past season. And one of the experiences I'll never forget was going down to Blanding, Utah and meeting Lewis Williams of Ancient Waves. And we he guided me down into the Comb Ridge, into a canyon, and showed me some amazing dwellings down there and petroglyphs and pictographs and just really told amazing history of the local indigenous tribes here. And Lewis had a unique way of painting a picture in your head of basically how these local tribes used to live hundreds and hundreds of years ago in these canyons within the Four Corners region here. So I'm going to play some clips from some of my favorite moments of that trip for you guys right now. Four feet. I'll show you where they would have been dancing. This is the plaza. So this is a huge open area in the central location of the city where they would have gathered and danced. So there would have been a procession of people coming in and look at how high these roofs are. So we're talking a huge, like a, like an amphitheater kind of thing. So we got plazas that are located in the region. We call them dance plazas. If you go to a modern day Pueblo in the central area, big open area where they dance, they come in and gather. So when I come here, I can hear it. I can hear them. Mm -hmm. and I can, and if, I just imagine being here and I can just imagine some of them are in some of these rooms getting ready, getting dressed, putting on their headdresses, you know. Then when it's time to hear to come, they could come out in a procession from these rooms. So these are ceremonial rooms where they would get ready. A lot going on underneath us. So who knows there's um, what's going on underneath us. You must look at this wall here. It's so thick. It looks like there's a little passageway in the middle. So there's, that's the system of how they would enter the dancing arena. And it's again, it's a ceremonial process. If they're celebrating. They're celebrating rain. They're celebrating harvest. They're celebrating a marriage. They're celebrating a birth. You know, ch changing of the seasons. There's a lot of dancing going on. A lot of singing. That's what I, that's what I, that's why I, I really like, it's really spiritual and powerful to be here because, mm -hmm. I mean, because if I, if I want to hear and see it, they're a procession, I'll just go to Zuni or New Mexico where I, they invite us to, to um, there's a lot of harvest going to be coming on, so there's going to be a lot of feasts with you guys. If you guys get a chance, you guys should go check it out, you guys. Mm -hmm. During July, August, and September, every other week, each Pueblo has got a harvest season or a little celebration they call it feast now so they if you go to the feast you see the dancing and anyone is welcome you got it okay. they just don't allow these though yeah oh yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely can't have, yeah can't record it or anything <laughs> yeah. like that it's really strict yeah which is cool yeah i like that <laughs> yeah man because you, you go yeah. and you're like dang man 
it's real man yeah i wish i could have recorded it you yeah. know because it's like real you know it's locked like locked in your memory exactly you were you were mentioning the singing that's another thing too when we were walking in here i think just because of the way that this wall is shaped and that that bowl almost we were walking i raised my voice a tiny bit and it echoed yeah. so i was imagining someone sitting over here with this big wall and singing and it echoing through people songs. up on top could hear it yeah so they're part of the ceremony yeah. too you know you could just sit up on top and be part of it Coming back from a hunt or something. Oh man, I was probably one of the best visuals from yeah. up there to just be Watching up there. Because the, yeah. yeah. oh, the warriors are taking care of everything up there, right. you know? Yeah. Scouting. There's there's probably. I've never hiked up into these really tough ledges, and those are where it's nice and cool, which means there's probably could be something stored in those places. Mm. That's where you find those granaries. Right. So there's a lot of. There's a, we're, the city's right here, but there's a lot of stuff going on, even above us too. Up on top, there's another ledge. Mm. Really protected here. Get communal, very communal. Let's go down a little further. We'll see some more cool stuff, y'all. All right. Like all the, if you see these walls on the outer perimeter, the outer, outer texture. They make it rough. You need, you need guess why? They would make the texture rough. So we'll, you know, nowadays we put up chicken wire. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. So they're making it rough texture, yeah. so the so the mud can adhere to the walk. Gotcha. The it's kind of like you know, if you are like want paint to adhere to something, you're gonna rough it up with some sandpaper first. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yep. All right. <laughs> is, this, is this modern? Yeah. Big spiral? Uh, <clears throat> no. Shoot, that's the real deal. Yeah. Big spiral. That's a huge spiral, which some <clears throat> spirals, they're migration stories. And got to make sure it's not a concentric circle. That's the spiral. Concentric circles are another circles within another that's a spiral which I've heard their migration stories and um, we just mentioned that these people lived in this structure for about 800 years hmm. periodic migration we see a lot of spirals here that's one huge migration they say so those are like durations like time Maybe years, because they're able to keep track of a, a whole year too. So we're looking at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Hmm. Eleven lines, which I don't know. Is it? Is maybe it? Maybe eleven moons. Maybe. Is it possible that could have been maybe a child or? A child's parent that was saying this is how many times or how many years I mean how I, I don't know how they how they what their concept of time was um, or how they kept it or how they knew how old they were or if that mattered they were keeping track of the moons totally that's so that's what that's what that is the time marker hmm. so, um, like I mentioned earlier a spiral if it's facing towards the Sun it's, it's usually gonna cast a shadow and it's, it's indicating time this is not facing towards the sun at all. Mm. So this is not indicating no, any time. It's more showing 
how long they were gone. And one year, you know, they, they're really knowledgeable about the rotating, the cosmos. So they care. That could be um, years. These nine years is good, too. I mean, you could, because they're building, they go into another city. So there's a lot going on for a while. And, you know, again, that this is, there's a lot of people in these places. Right. So that's just probably maybe just one family said, okay, you guys, we're out of here. And they came back and that was theirs. So it wasn't just maybe all at once, too. That's what, because there's so many clans. So, so basically, we're seeing these holes that they had drilled in for a roof, but then there's multiple, so they kind of go up. So almost like this was like three stories tall. Totally. We're, we're in the, there's stories underneath us, yeah. Blaine. So we're wow. in the middle Oh, yeah, because this is built up, so yeah. we're sort of on the, uh, oh, wow. So it looks like there's no, one level there. Mm -hmm. And that's, if you notice, they're both, they're even. Yeah. Those, that, those two poles were the upper level. Well, so, so you know, you, you, you mentioned, I noticed this earlier, you mentioned the ground um, and, and how there are stories underneath us. Yeah. As you said, 500 AD, it's about 1,500 years. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm a history buff, so I'm thinking about all these civilizations around the world, Jerusalem, all these major cities, and there are cities on top of cities on top of cities on top of cities. And if this was a good place to build, then it would make sense that there was a city already here, and then they, maybe they built on top of that, and then on top of that, and then on top of that. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah. And, and so, it. like, what we see is one, the last one, but there's there could be, you know, three or four or five under us, and there's all these massive mounds. You know, totally. So we don't know what's under us you and how it. long that's been here. Exactly. Mm -hmm. we got the same. Powerful. We've got, we got that same effect going on out here because, shoot, basket makers, they live in the ground, pit homes. So mm -hmm. naturally, everything basket makers lower. And, you know, the Pueblo, like, we're standing above ground we're noticing someplace some of these places these petroglyphs are right 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 near the ground mm -hmm. telling us there's a lot going on underneath mm -hmm. this underneath archaic time period we're talking 7000 bc yeah. got the glen canyon linear style we have that around here mm. so 7000 bc uh -huh. people were here but that was down below yeah. they had protection they were more nomadic so they weren't building these rock structures yet but they left their marks and those marks are underneath us you can't see them that's what I want to share with people is I want them to have an inspiration to to know that these places are all there's stories to it there's a story not too many people know those stories that's mm -hmm. what we're here for us mm -hmm. guys we're here to, to radiate these stories that are just been sitting here there's stories all around. Yeah. You know, these rocks all have stories. Everything, these birds, they all have stories. That's where as guides come in, as indigenous guides, because this is indigenous soil. Just, in, just you don't find these plants in nice, lush Colorado. You know, you, different type of plants. So here, you know, we we share that with people. Is this is living history? This is time stood still time has been preserved on those rocks since we saw images from 500 bc that's been here 
taken care of by these birds, by the terrain. That's what people, that's why I love to bring people out here is because they give me that inspiration to take care of this place. Because like you mentioned, back east, everything's so populated. People come from back east here, they're like, wow, there's so much, I can't believe we didn't see a structure. There's, where's, where's the nearest gas station? Mm-hmm. I say, around here, you gotta fill up your gas. There's no gas station around here. <laughs> they can't believe it, you know, they, they're like, what? Back home, like every mile, you know, out here. That's why um, I have to say, I really love coming to this area is because I connect and it teaches me that I need to be, we're all part of this world. What an amazing experience I had down there on the Comb Ridge with Lois. And the history here is just so rich. Uh, that's one of the things that I personally just love about it. And it's, it's, I've said this a million times and I'll say it again. <laughs> uh, the history here is so visual. Uh, we can see it and, um, it's definitely within all of the dwellings and the petroglyphs and the pictographs. Um, it's even in our dinosaur tracks here. Um, and, even the old buildings right here in Moab on, on Main Street. Uh, a lot of them are from the 1800s still. And it was just so unique to be able to go down into that canyon and to hear these stories and to be educated on the history of local indigenous peoples within the Four Corners region. And one of those areas that is a lot closer to Moab in particular would be what is now Canyonlands National Park. Down in the Needles District of Canyonlands, you can still see a lot of petroglyphs and pictographs. Uh, Newspaper Rock is just right there on the outskirts, and uh, painted handprints and uh, dwellings. And so one of the other things that we did this year is I interviewed a lot of folks who knew Bates Wilson, and including his family members, his son and his two daughters. And they told me the history of what it took to create uh, Canyonlands National Park, to protect it from further mining other resources. Um, So I'm going to play some really nice highlights from the history of Canyonlands from the people who knew Bates Wilson. I'm Bates Wilson, and I'm very proud to have been the first superintendent of Canyonlands. It's a great privilege. These can side canyons that run back into the white rim are really fantastic. You get weird shapes, pinnacles, spires, even uh, balanced rocks that are unbelievable. Why they stay there, we don't know. Why they stay up, and they do. <laughs> See the headdress on that guy standing out in front? Arms folded like this. <laughs> uh, you can see if you want to walk from here to there, it's sort of the old saying you can't get there from here. There are just too many canyons in between you. You have to go around. Well, and, and 
take the lay of the land the way it is. But it's a big, big country. And it is difficult. It's rough. It's rugged. And yet, it's very, very delicate. Very delicate. When I flew over it with pewed stocks, I had never really seen anything like it. I mean, it was just unique as it could be. And uh, I'd only been here in Moab for a week. I thought that arches and natural bridges were great. But this, the immensity of it, the colorful rock formations, the geology, the archaeology, everything just fitted in to make a super-duper national park. I mean, one that would qualify right down the line, scenically, scientifically, and uh, aesthetically, let's say. And it is a natural place, and I'd love to see it stay that way. We thought that, that canyon lands because there are many, many canyons, would be an appropriate name for it. There was so much controversy when it came to Canyonlands, which maybe you're going to talk about in a few minutes, but in the way he envisioned Canyonlands should be developed and um, the way others in Moab wanted it to be developed, there was, of course, that conflict because some people wanted... Many people, I'll say, trying to be diplomatic here, wanted much more development than Bates wanted. So there was a little bit of of difficulty there. I can't find any evidence of any park employee, superintendent, management, or other, who ever got designated or created a national park out of lands for which they were not responsible. Bates, you know, got arches expanded from a monument to a park, and there's a lot of histories of those. The same thing in Capitol Reef, which he worked on, uh, and many, many monuments have become parks in that way. But in terms of Canyonlands, I cannot find any evidence of any employee who got land designated or credited with creating a park out of public lands for which they had no responsibility. Wow. Yeah, that's that, that's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, speaking of controversy, um, tell us a little bit about the Canyonlands controversy kind of at the beginning, you know, because it kind of looked like, you know, the BLM wanted the land to continue to look for other resources and mining. And then you've got folks like your father, you know, who was doing the groundwork, you know, and pushing it to become a national park. Yeah, I think there's, there's always um, in something redesignating land use very controversial. You had probably three interests there all in conflict with each other. One is the stock people, the cattle stockmen, um, who of course wouldn't want any change because they were running their stock, uh, grazing up for peanuts on public land. You had the uranium mining interests who wanted the land for um, producing uranium um, 
and perhaps other minerals eventually, vanadium, radium, and so forth. And you also had the water resources people who wanted to build dams. So you had those three main sort of folks, in my mind, who, who all um, were opposed in one way or another to the designation as a national park um, or a national monument for that matter, uh, largely because it then kind of becomes off limits to them. And um, Dad was pretty good as a horse trader and discussions and whatever, um, and he got a lot of help from certain people, Stuart Udow, um, gentleman from Colorado in the final Senate hearings, is the one who kind of came up with a compromise to make Canyonlands a national park. Um, and then you had the tourist industry, which was minor at that time compared today. Um, people in Moab were not visitation tourist oriented at all. They were largely, as I recall, opposed to the park idea, except for perhaps a couple of motel owners. But they were also making money in other ways, from the movie industry, from the uranium mining, um, the people who come to do explorations and that sort of thing. So there was not an enormous enthusiasm for a park within the town. Hmm. But that didn't deter him. What on the ground? What were some of the uh, what was some of the groundwork that he was doing to make it into? Well, I think probably um, initially the park idea was not necessarily forefront of his mind, or maybe even in his mind. Um, it, it was the beauty of the land and the, some of the Native American um, sites that we came across. Um, the explorations that we did, first with the horseback trip, funded by his cousin, Robert, um, or Bob Deckert, who was a very famous Philadelphia lawyer. He served in the Eisenhower administration as legal counsel for the Department of Army. Um, Robert Deckert had been everywhere in the world and ferocious learner and reader, knew almost everything about anything you ever want to know. And he came and funded a horse track trip that we did with Ross Musselman as an outfitter in March of 1950. And prior to that, Ray and Virginia Garner had arrived with a letter from the Secretary of Interior in April of 40, or June of 49, right after we moved there, and the letter said to my father, um, do what basically, do what these people need to want to. They were rock climbers and um, travel photographers, filmmakers. So they did a trip with his maintenance man, Merle, and that gave Dad some insight as to the area. Then we did the horseback trip which I saw Jeep tracks, which were probably Merle's in Salt Creek. And that gave me um, the idea to do our Boy Scout annual summer camp out, so to speak, or summer camp, in the Needles versus at Warner Lake. And because we were a non-Mormon troop, we were out let out of school May 15th, generally, so kids could work the fields and orchards, us non-LDS scouts were free to go to the Needles. We went there before it got hot and before the Noceans arrived. And we did those trips four summers. And those, I think, in many ways gave my father two weeks, in some cases, of hands-on 
hiking and exploring um, arches, canyons, ruins, rock art, etc., that he might not have ever have seen. And, and that, along with the 1957 National Geographic trip um, with photographer and author Robert Moore, Bob Moore, um, which was a two-week adventure, gave him then another uh, evidence, largely by Jeep and Horse, um, more extensive in some sense or more complete as to what was in particular in Salt Creek, Davis Canyon, and Horse Canyon, and um, Lavender Canyon. Um, those items before 1960, I have a feeling set in his mind that the land between arches and bridges was a park character, park caliber. It was largely untouched. The uranium mining had not gotten very much into it yet. There was a small drift mine in Upper Salt Creek, not too far from uh, the Upper Jump, but that was about it within the valleys of What's the Needles, which is the main area we explored. Um, so by 1957, um, he had gotten a pretty good idea of the overall value of what we call the needles. And at the same time, he started expanding his knowledge outside of that, um, but didn't explore it extensively until um, 1960 time frame. Well, 1961, when Stuart Udell um, wanted to look at the area. He had just attended a conference in Arizona someplace about dams. He flew over the confluence. He was very unhappy about the rear reclamation's idea of building a dam at the confluence and somehow contacted my father or whatever and arranged for a trip in 61, which Robert Moore, the geographic writer and photographer, came back to and the article in 1962 issue of National Geographic called Cities of Stones is a combination of the 57 trip and the 61 trip. Not quite parsed equally, but most of the second part, the 61 and the 57 is in the first half. And, and that, those two combined trips, plus discussion with um, Udall, with Robert Moore, with his cousin Robert Deckard, and a number of dads friends, he had kind of a wide range of friends in Santa Fe, the Park Service, um, Vermont, um, etc. sort of set the bricks in cement for a park. That's my view. A lot of controversies there. Um, the road to uh, Spring Canyon, for example, to Dead End, people wanted that to go all the way around, and I don't know, they called it a gold and circle drive or something. He was totally opposed to that, but he had to... Uh, he had to acquiesce and at least build a spur down the Spring Canyon, and fortunately they ran out of money and stopped. Mm. Wow. Making that accessible to everybody. And, Bridges uh, National Monument. Greatly improving the living situation for the staff, mm. which has turned out to probably be extremely smart because then you had Glen Canyon build Highway 95, which was largely for uranium originally, and First it went broke through Comb Ridge in the northern part, and then the main dugway in the southern part. Then you started having hordes of people come. So that was also an important development, all at the same time of doing arches, canyonlands, 
and bridges. Founding energy up to a point, but sometimes I'm sure, um, and I am, of course, by that time, I'm in the East working at IBM Research. I'm not, this is in the early 60s, I'm not involved with the family details. Well, we did visit Moab once a year, roughly, for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but he was exhausted at times. On the other hand, sometimes when I would come out, we would take um, a Jeep and go to Needles for a week or a few days. Um, one time with um, my son, who was about maybe six, my wife, Maxine, we, we went to Beef Basin. We came down Bobby's Hole and across Elephant Hill. We camped out a few days. Um, that would probably be about 1971. Mm -hmm. It took time to do that and, yeah. uh, and show us the sights and talk about the park, etc. Yeah. It was a park at that point. So... What was the name and how it was found? Um, at the end of the 1957 National Geographic trip, one of the members on that trip was Harlan Beeman, who was the director of state aeronautics at the state of Utah. He flew a state airplane, an Apache twin engine, not much wing space, but very fast airplane. And, and he left that in Monticello at the air, little airstrip while on our two-week approximately two-week trip. At the end of the trip, he offered to take any of the members, which there were about 10 of us, or thereabouts, some of them paid for the trip, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, on a flyover of where we had just been. And Dad and I naturally would be the last people to fly. And I'm sitting in the right-hand rear seat of this twin-engine Apache. This plane had to fly very fast because it had very little airlift from the wings. And we're flying over towards Chester because we've been in Chester to take a look at it. And I had an Argus C3 that I had purchased a few years before, and I was used to taking a lot of photos. I had the camera ready in case I saw something of interest. And um, I'm looking out the window on my right side, and I see something which I think is an arch, and I snap the photo. But the plane's moving so fast, and we didn't circle around, you can't really get a good, get a good view of it, or can't fully absorb it. But when I had the film developed, um, sure enough, there is a big, tall arch, narrow and thin, in a pin. And um, so that would have been, probably the film was developed in July or August of 57. And um, Dad uh, took a look at the it had only one slide of it, because it only could take one of us moving so fast. Um, and a number of his rangers with arches, by that time we had had more, under Mission 66, more rangers with arches. They had Abby, his brother, for example, and a number of other people. And there was a guy down at Bridges. Um, and, a, and a few of them decided to go look for the arch based on this slide. Um, they never found it. In fact, they got completely lost. They ended up oh. entering Elephant Canyon from Chesler Park, mm -hmm. and on their way back down the canyon, having not found the arch, they missed the little turnoff at what I call the ironing board flat irons. Those are slabs of flagstone in the bottom of Elephant Canyon that if you don't recognize them and then turn to your left and go up a, a draw, you're not going to get back to Chesler. They walked all the way down to the road crossing um, 
Elephant Canyon. And um, then another six, seven, eight months goes by, no one finds the orange. So I'm graduating from the University of Utah, and um, actually I graduated a little bit of a year late because I had whooping cough one year and I had to have an extra year to catch up a certain physics sequence. So I ended up in the U five years. But on the fourth year, I have everything all completed except one physics sequence. And that gave me a week's vacation. What that means is we're going to the needles in your Jeep. I own a new Jeep. Um, we're going to go look for things and so on. And one of our designations was to try to find this art that is in this photograph that I took on the flyover. He was always inviting people to join us. In this case, he invited a wool merchant from Chicago named John Levering. So the three of us in my little Jeep go down to the Needles over Elephant Hill, Central, and we get into Chesler. I have a gorgeous photograph of um, a fire where they're making food at sundown with a great big rock cliff illuminated where the trail breaks out and goes down into Elephant Canyon. Next morning, we we skinny down a pinyon tree to get into a draw that leads us into Elephant Canyon. We walk up, which means walking south, Elephant Canyon, and I always like to get out of the bottom. And at some point, I climbed out of the bottom to the left. That'd be on the southeast side of the canyon. Climbed up around the butte, and lo and behold, in front of me is this gorgeous arch, which you've seen the photograph. That's the original first photograph on the ground, I think, of Druid Arch. I took that as I came around. I took quite a few slides, actually, and um, threw my rope down to John and Dad and helped them get out of Elephant Canyon at the head where they could see the arch. Mm. And that... Yeah, I took that photograph, one of my slides, and sent it to his cousin, Robert Deckert, who, as I said before, was a world traveler. And he, Dad asked him, what should, we, what should it be named? And his immediate response was, Druid from Stonehenge, of course. And I've been to Stonehenge, took my family there, and sure enough, you have these tall pillars with a lentil across, and it's an absolutely perfect name. Mm. That's awesome a little stock tank on, on the way into Chesler and at some point um, oh, superintendent I can't remember his name but I well met him um, that was dad's, one of dad's first rangers at Canyonlands he told the ranger he said close the road into Chesler because there are too many Jeeves coming and, and he said that Tug will be very angry <laughs> so they closed the road probably 65 or 67 so no one could drive in there anymore because there were too many people driving too many places in Chesler. Yeah. Wow. When Dad closed the road, he needed to find a way for people to come in besides walking the old road in, which I actually still prefer in many ways. So he and a couple of rangers figured out a way to go from um, the end of the road, so to speak, um, a little draw to the south of Chesler through what's called the Joint Trail. And it's a, it's a wonderful hike. Um, I still take people the old road in. Uh, I know exactly where it is. I'm, I have no trouble with it. I took Bud Turner and, and uh, 
Chris Gertzian and showed a man. Um, we found a, an old Indian fire, slab fire pit, right near the stock tank that, um, that <clears throat> two stocks had built on the road in. Um, and it was a good idea to close it because it was a very, very bad uh, dugway you had to get through. I had to lower my windshield on my CJ2A and 3B to get under it. Hmm. No, it was a good idea to close it. Yeah. But the joint trail was fine. So we just heard from Tug Wilson and Cindy Wilson. Uh, they are Bates Wilson's son and daughter. And Bates Wilson is one of my favorite people in Moab history just because of his enthusiasm and his drive uh, for protecting land and taking care of this beautiful place that we get to call home here in the Moab region. And he was over Arches National Monument from 1949 until 1972. And Canelands became a national park in 1964. So at that time, he was over both parks. And um, I just failed to mention that he was also over Natural Bridges National Monument. Uh, that is the reason why he called the Canyonlands the land in between. Um, so being able to talk to his son and his two daughters and all these other people that, um, that knew him was pretty fantastic for me. <laughs> I'll just be honest. It was, it was, it was probably like one of the highlights of, of my, of my year when it comes to uh, local Moab history and talking to these people who knew Bates Wilson uh, and hearing all these stories and learning for myself. Um, I was able to gain a lot of knowledge, uh, especially from my own personal interp while guiding people into the back country of arches and Canyon lands. And one of the main things that a lot of folks love to hear while I'm guiding them is the history of just the town itself, the town of Moab here, and kind of how we got started. Um, and one of my favorite things to talk about with people and to tell them is about William Grandstaff. He was one of the first settlers in the 1870s to be able to call the Moab Valley home. And we really didn't know a whole lot about William Grandstaff. Um, all we basically knew was that he... Uh, was obviously a, a freed slave from the Civil War, and that he settled in the Moab Valley, and then uh, he cattle ranched um, into a canyon now that bears his name, um, just right up the Colorado River a few miles. And then he kind of got out of here in 1881, shortly after the Battle of Pinhook. So I heard that the Moab Museum had some new information and even an, an exhibit about the things that they found and learned about William Grandstaff. So I invited my good pal, Mary Langworthy from the Moab Museum to join me in the studio. And we did an episode about William Grandstaff. So I'm gonna highlight real quick some of my favorite moments from that particular episode. So for the past couple of years, I've been working to convene several folks who care a lot about the history of William Grandstaff. If you live in Moab, you may have heard this name. He was an early settler of this region and a black cowboy who ran cattle in the canyon that we now call Grandstaff Canyon. And his story has always been a little bit <clears throat> mysterious, like you were saying. There's always been a lot of unknowns. He's kind of been the subject of a lot of mystery, legend, lore, uh, myth over the years. And we've been fortunate as a community to have some new research come to light. Um, I've worked over the past couple of years with a musician and opera composer named Jerry Elias, who got interested in Grandstaff's story 
and composed an opera about him. Um, oh, that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it uh, debuted in 2014 at the Moab Music Festival, oh, and then okay. they played it again this past, uh, a few weeks ago, actually, nice. um, at the music festival again. And he really got captivated by Grandstaff's story and dove into a lot of research and then connected with... Uh, Nick Sheedy, the lead genealogist of the PBS show Finding Your Roots, hmm. who is an expert in particularly the history and genealogy of Black Americans. It's often very hard to trace due to scant records. And um, those two really dove deep into Grandstaff's story. So we've got a lot of fresh new insights about um, where he came from and what his life was like before and after his time in Moab. It seems that he was likely born in slavery in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Mm. And there's a few different, a couple different um, lines of thinking that leads us to believe that. Basically, mm. there's some discrepancies in the census records that have his name not terribly uncommon. Three of five U.S. census records cite Virginia as his birthplace. Mm -hmm. um, there's two others that cite other states in the South. But uh, Nick Sheedy did a really thorough analysis of slaveholding individuals with the last name Grandstaff mm -hmm. in Southern states and looked at the slave schedules of the U.S. census, which were how the U.S. accounted for black people held in slavery. Um, basically, slave schedules look like a long list of names of the enslavers, and then mm -hmm. uh, the age and gender and color of the people that they had were holding in slavery. So um, based on a thorough survey of all slaveholding families named Grandstaff, and a look at the people held in slavery by those different people, there's really only one possible person, um, and that is a, a guy named George Grandstaff, who lived in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and had a couple of young male slaves who would have been the correct um, approximate age to be William Grandstaff. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of cool records from this time period. Um, this is a time when really the whole country was in serious upheaval, of course, mm. um, around the time of the Civil War. And basically, we see record that he got married to someone named Isabella, or Belle for short. Um, they had at least one kid. And we also see that he um, was a member of the Cincinnati Black Brigade, which is considered um, the first organized army regiment of black Americans to fight in the Civil War. Yeah. And that was a, um, a unit that was um, assembled to help defend Cincinnati against an anticipated Confederate attack. And he's in, like, the first regiment, Company A, and um, appears on the muster roll there, along with um, a bunch of other black men of about the same age. Hmm. 
So in this episode, we see that William Grandstaff was born a slave in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and then uh, somehow found his way to Cincinnati, Ohio, and joined the Cincinnati Black Brigade uh, for the Union Army. And then um, Mary went on to tell us that the census records after that show that he was in Omaha, Nebraska, um, where uh, we are unsure if that is where he learned the cowboy trade. Uh, And then uh, eventually, yes, uh, he ended up in the Moab Valley. And he got here with a fella named Frenchie, um, which we don't have any, hardly anything uh, about him except for his name that he was here. Um, according to the stories. Um, but William Grandstaff was running cattle into the Grandstaff Canyon, uh, a few miles up the Colorado River. Um, and so after the Battle of Pinhook of 1881, uh, he left, he vanished. Um, and so that's kind of where the mystery had always lied as to what happened to William Grandstaff. Um, so we're going to go back to this episode here and we're going to find out what Mary Langworthy and the Moab Museum found out about what happened to William Grandstaff. The chapter of William Grandstaff's life after leaving Moab is really the most well-documented chapter that we have on his life. Basically, he ended up in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, okay. which um, is a a lovely little canyon um, and uh, a mining town around the time that he was there. We have land records from um, him owning property out there. He owned a hot spring in the South Canyon. He also um, reportedly ran the Grandstaff Landing Saloon, um, uh, which sounds like a a great Wild West uh, (laughs) sort of establishment. Um, A saloon in a mining town in Colorado in the late 1800s. Sounds like a lot of fun. Perfect. Um, So he did that. Um, He also had a number of mining claims. Um, He lived up on Red Mountain, um, which is pretty visible from from town if you're ever driving through. It's the Big Red Mountain. Mm -hmm. And um, there's also... It seems that he also got remarried there. Uh, We haven't been able to locate a marriage certificate, but uh, Rebecca Grandstaff is listed as a co-owner on some of his property. Um, So really, really a variety of records. He also, um, there's a newspaper article listing his candidacy. He was running for constable um, in the area. Um, So... So kind of neat to see there's a real collage of records from his time in Colorado that kind of paint paint the picture of a pretty vibrant life. I mean, he yes. never struck it rich mining, but he was buying and selling land, um, dabbling in different things. I mean, if you look back on his resume, he really has like a, a classic wild west resume you know yeah. he, he ran cattle in utah and then he had a saloon and then he was mining it's like a, a trifecta of absolutely um, frontiersman yeah vocations it sounds like he was doing pretty good though <laughs> it I seems mean, like you're owning a saloon and a hot spring that's that's a win yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's a win <laughs> um that's that's awesome though you know th- and these are you know these are like new discoveries that we're just not like, like this part, like I'm just learning all this. And this is 
fantastic. Yeah, yeah. There's a a couple of um, Moab histories that have have made reference to to this chapter a bit in the past, and um, I've also been grateful for the collaboration of Sharon Holler at the um, Historical Society mm-hmm. in Glenwood Springs, who's um, helped with some of these records. And he's kind of been a, a man of mystery for for them as well in mm-hmm. that community um, as one of the early settlers and frontiersmen there. Um, but I, I really love... Um, his obituary, actually, because he oh. dies in Glenwood Springs in 1901. And, okay. I mean, all the other records we have of his life are, like, censuses and land sales and all these really sterile documents mm-hmm. that give us dates and facts and information. But um, the obituary is kind of the most um, kind of telling telling portrait into his life and who he was as a person. Mm. I've awesome. got, yeah. I've got You've a got little that? bit of it here. Okay, awesome. Um, I would, lo- yeah, if, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's hear it. I would love. I'll to. just read a couple sentences from it. Sure. Um, the old man lived a solitary life on the top of the mountain where he had several mining claims, which he had been working for the past six or seven years. He was accustomed to making regular trips to this town for the purpose of obtaining fresh provisions and visiting his friends, and when his absence became prolonged, they became alarmed. And that's from the Avalanche Echo, which is a great name for a newspaper. Oh, absolutely. August 22nd, 1901. Wow, 1901. Yeah. Man, that's awesome. Like, yeah. I feel like that's, you know, just as you mentioned, that's such an like a very intimate piece that we have of him. And of all things, it would be his obituary. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> of all things. Um but, you know, I think, and, you know, this is just kind of like one of those things that really makes our history here in Moab so rich and interesting. And because we've got, you know, so much in our history that is like documented fact, you know, everything, you know, written down, there's photographic proof, photographic evidence. But then, you know, we've also got a lot of things in our, in our history that, it's been a mystery for so long and it's really cool to start seeing some of these things like William Grant stuff, um, start getting these new discoveries and stuff. And I feel like, I feel like we're, this is just sort of the, the tip of the iceberg here. I feel like we're going to be learning a lot more about Grant stuff. I feel like hopefully maybe a photo is going to arise <laughs> of the man someday. That way we can, you know, get a good picture of him and, um, and, uh, just to put a face with the name. That is the dream. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you know if yeah. we ever, ever come across that. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, Grand Stuff story, it's just adds such a rich variety to Moab's mm-hmm. understanding of itself. Yeah. And to, in so many ways, it's the quintessential Western story of this solitary man seeking opportunity moving out west doing all the western things Mm -hmm. running cattle mining Mm -hmm. having a saloon seeking seeking opportunity and in other ways it defies what you expect because grandstaff was black and he was born in slavery Mm -hmm. and that is 
not the image that maybe comes to mind when you think of a cowboy and you think of a settler. But right. here's this guy who who was those things mm-hmm. and who has held a prominent place in this community's understanding of itself yeah. all these years later. Absolutely. And it's he has a legacy that lives on here in the in the canyon that so many people hike and mm-hmm. in Glenwood too. In Glenwood yeah. it's it's really cool actually. There's um when he died, um the the people that went up to um like bury him and they they burned his little cabin as a health precaution, um huh. kind of a a thing of the times. Um but they installed this uh like makeshift tree cross um where he had lived um to memorialize him and uh years later the old tree cross wooden cross fell down um and was replaced with a metal cross um and illuminated with electricity from the nearby ski resort oh nice and there's still a cross up there on red mountain today that gets um it's huge and it gets uh illuminated for like christmas and a couple other prominent holidays um so kind of a landmark keep your keep your eye out next time you're driving over to denver oh my gosh um yeah you can see it way up there at night and it's it's really neat to see like that (laughs) legacy living on in that community and in this community and just how this man's story has um kind of complicated our understanding mm-hmm. of our past right? Yeah, in a really neat way. Awesome. What an awesome story of William Grandstaff. And I love that we're finding out these new things about him because technically in all reality, we're finding out new things about the beginnings of the history here in Moab um, with settlers. Uh, so what a wonderful episode. I thoroughly enjoyed doing that one uh, with Mary Langworthy this year. Um, And you can find all of the episodes on kzmu.org under public affairs, and then go to the History Hour, and you can find all of the episodes from last year and even this year as well. And if you are on Facebook, uh, feel free to search the Moab History Hour KZMU page. Uh, Once a week, I like to do this little thing where um, I take a program that I have and I edit a old black and white photo from Moab and make it into color. And it's called Old Moab in Color. (laughs) And it's just a really neat little thing uh, that I enjoy doing uh, once a week on there. And I like to communicate with the community uh, through that particular page. And I certainly don't want to forget to thank all of the guests that I had on the show this year. Um, They really, truly made uh, this year a very spectacular year for the History Hour. And I am definitely looking forward to producing some really awesome stuff for you guys next year. Don't forget to tune in next month, the last Monday of January, for an all-new episode of the History Hour right here on KZMU.